Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are executive art director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Senior editor Matt Kenny. Hello. And drunken woodworker David Picciuto. More on that coming up. As always, if you like this podcast, be sure to spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a sweet five-star rating. You can also catch us on iHeartRadio. So before we get things started, I have an important announcement uh, related to finewoodworking.com. My former uh, number two, Lisa, uh, shamelessly uh, performed a shameless, traitorous act. Mm-hmm. By departing the fine woodworking franchise for the fine home building franchise, how dare you, Lisa? Which means um, I have an opening for a web producer, and uh, I wanted to shamelessly plug for this position on Shop Talk Live. Oh, to see if there's any potential candidates out there. Absolutely. So, yeah. so here's the deal. Uh, Let me just tell everybody this before yeah. you say it. Ed is a horrible <laughs> boss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very. Am I mean or what am I? Mostly it's the shorts. You wear shorts way too much to work. <laughs> and no shoes, barefoot. I'm that guy on the airplane. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, but anyhow, uh, so as far as what, uh, what I'm looking for, I mean, obviously an interest in woodworking is, uh, is desired. Um, you might want to have some video and photography chops, the ability to write coherent sentences, and uh, a little bit of uh, experience in the online world, be it social media, um, as well as some basic uh, HTML chops. and yeah, I mean, uh, It doesn't mean watching – your online experience has to extend beyond watching video on correct, YouTube or correct. video. This person is going to be creating uh, weekly e-letters, uh, writing copy, coming up with images, uh, pitching video ideas, eventually shooting video, all sorts of stuff. So if you're media savvy and you like woodworking, uh, go to the Taunton.com website, find the careers portal, and find the web producer position on there. Um, so with that, I believe, uh, Matt, you had, uh, a slightly uncomfortable situation arise within the past week or so. Yeah, I was at the, mm. uh, the Lee Nielsen show. Not new territory for you. No, not at all. <laughs> I was at the Lee Nielsen hand tool event at, uh, in, in New York City recently. It was actually, yeah. I guess it's technically it was in Queens. And, uh, so Friday I'm there and I'm at my workbench and doing a little work and passing out magazines and talking to people. And this guy comes up. He says, you're Matt Kinney, right? And I said, uh, yes. He goes, I love the podcast. And I said, oh, well, thank you. You know, we enjoy doing the podcast. Wait for it. And he said, even though when I emailed in a question <laughs> about cutting my fingers off at my table saw, you were really snarky about it and made fun of me. And I was like, oh, It's no. <laughs> like, oh, no, what am I going to say? And he goes, but don't worry. I thought it was hilarious. What was, what was the gentleman's name again? <clears throat> His name is oh gosh I just his name is uh hold on a second uh, Billy Billy now yeah. I would like to remind Billy that uh following the recording of that podcast I admonished Matt uh severely <laughs> right uh, for the remarks that he made so I don't want to be held uh, accountable for any snarky remarks that Matt Kenny might have made If I recall correctly it was really not that bad No nah, it wasn't we busted his chops a little for not using a splitter, right? Or a, a, something like that. It was something. something like that. I don't remember. He actually was a very nice fellow. We had a nice conversation. Now, how do his you you had remarked that he had had some sort of pseudo groundbreaking procedure done on him? 
I don't know if pseudo is well, the right term. <laughs> there, there was, I mean, it's something that's been, it's a technology that's been around for a while, but they're basically growing skin and, and grafting and doing all this crazy stuff nowadays. No, actually, it, it only cost them $6 million. But after <laughs> but they, they were done. they could rebuild him. But they did rebuild him. <laughs> he was amazing. Uh, I some type of uh, skin healing It's a regenerative, potion. some sort of regenerative process that I've heard about before. Yeah, they did amazing things to his skin. I can't remember the last name. And he still has all of his digits. Which is a good thing. Right. Very yes. good. We're not talking about his phone numbers either. All right, Billy. Hit there you go. For the digits. Um, so <laughs> let's, uh, let's move into some questions. And uh, that's, how, that's actually how Matt uh, used to ask women for their phone numbers. Okay. He would ask for their digits. I was like, he was really cool. I got all my digits. Can I have yours? All right. Whatever. <laughs> First question this week comes from Clem, who writes, oh, yeah. In show number 75, you referenced glue sizing when talking about gluing up frames. I have always, I guess he's talking about picture frames here. I have always wondered about what glue sizing is, when to do it, why to do it, and how to do it. So well, I've done this with picture frames, and Matt most recently did it. Uh in a uh, box building article in the upcoming issue in 246. Right. So when you've got a big frame, you have to use large glue. And when you have a medium-sized frame, you have to use medium glue. So that's how you size your glue? That's how you size your that's... glue, yes. Uh, <sighs> all right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I haven't been on the show in a while. i got to get a little bit of it out. Yeah. Uh, so glue sizing... <coughs> Excuse oh, me. that's... You really... This is... You're taking your unprofessionalism to new heights, <laughs> coughing all over the mic. Um, so glue sizing is basically the process of saturating ingrain fibers and then let with a mixture of glue and water, letting that mixture that, uh, dry in the fibers, which clogs the pores. And then when you go back and apply actual glue, it doesn't get sucked down into the fibers and it creates a stronger joint. So, so the idea is that so much glue is getting sucked into those ingrain fibers, you don't have enough left in the joint. Without yeah. the glue size. Yeah, so this is really something you only do with miter joints uh, where you have ingrain to ingrain. Yep. And the problem why miter joints are not strong traditionally is that when you apply like a PVA glue to it, the fibers soak in so much of the glue and what they call the solids, which actually creates the adhesion, uh, before the glue dries and can set up a bond that the bond is really weak because most of it got sucked down into the fibers. Right. So the glue size which is thinned yellow glue, 50-50 water and yellow glue, it's made to get sucked down into the fibers. Then it clogs the fibers and dries. And then when you put the actual glue on the miter joint, it doesn't get sucked down in. You don't resurface it, sand off those surfaces again? Uh, you don't have to. I Sometimes I'll, I might hit it with a little 320. Okay. Uh, P320, not Cami 320. How long do you allow the sizing to dry? <clears throat> Until it's dry. I mean, dry completely. You could, uh, the guy at Franklin that I originally spoke to about with this too about this said overnight. Hmm. I've gone to cut it down to like two hours and have had not had any trouble. Okay, that's good to know because I always worried when sizing uh, end grain on miters. I had always worried that if I let it dry totally, 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 that then there would be sort of a barrier, um, and you wouldn't have any wood fiber left for the subsequent coat of glue to adhere to. So I, I would brush it on, let it dry just for like 20 minutes, mm-hmm. and then I would come back and put my final coat of glue. But you're saying you can let it dry longer, totally, completely, utterly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, I mean, I think you're, you're dealing with a slightly compromised joint either way. Yeah. It either gets sucked all the way in or you're pre-sealing, which I do 
suspect, and Michael Fortune is writing an article on PVAs, and he does not glue size. He says, no, PVA glue does not adhere to PVA glue that's already been dried. That's like, what I'm to wondering. your point. On the other hand, if the alternative is everything getting sucked into the joint, that's a problem as well. And also this joint, because all the grain is basically going at 45 degrees, you're halfway between a long grain joint and a butt joint, which, you know, end, end grain to end grain joint where there's no strength at all. So even under ideal conditions, it's not the strongest joint in the world. And for the most part, you're probably reinforcing it somehow with Splines, the spine or, yeah. or keys. Well, something. I would I would disagree. First of all, there's <clears throat> no, it's not like there's. I'm a, sorry. Hold on. Hold on. Are you disagreeing with Mike Pekovich? You're disagreeing with Mike. Uh, yes. Is that a problem? Not at all. <laughs> not at no. all. I'm uncomfortable in here now. I, no, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just pointing <laughs> out. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Mike just moved. Like, pulling your leg away from me. Uh, I'm just pointing out that when you glue size and that dries. There's not. It's not like there's a film of yellow glue dry yeah. on the joint. No, because it's getting yeah. sucked down so into those straws. You're not trying to adhere PVA glue to PVA glue. I mean, there's still wood fibers there mm-hmm. that you're adhering the glue to. Yeah. No, I understand all that. Yeah. It's sort of like, hmm. hmm, is that a problem or not? And a lot of woodworkers like yourself do the glue size, and then some other woodworkers say, nope, you just put on the heavy glue and maybe hit it again right before glue up. So it's. I believe anecdotally. I believe that the glue-sized miter joint is stronger than the non-glue-sized. And by anecdotally, you mean I've glued them together and tried to pull them apart, and it's harder to pull glue-sized joints apart than not. That would make an interesting little bl- – we did a, an article many years ago on the strength of different joints, and I remember you guys – this is before my time, but you guys, one of the joints I think was a, mi- a glued miter joint. Yes. And you put it between – like you sort of – Put it on some apparatus that applied pressure. The braking machine. It bra- the braking machine. I, w- yeah. I would like to do that with sized versus non-sized, same species from the same board. Sure. Um, that would be kind of interesting. Actually, I mean, we found that the, the glue joint was actually really strong. But mm-hmm. the problem is, like, on a wide picture frame, um, you also have to take into account that that wood is going to expand and contract across its width over time. And... When that miter joint, um, when that board expands and contracts, that miter joint is actually changing the geometry of the joint. Yeah, that's an issue with uh, frame miters. Right. Uh, with box miters, it's not as much of an issue because the wood movement doesn't. Across the thickness is so small. Right. Yep. Yeah. But if in that case, if you square the hypotenuse of the arc, that would not become such an issue. Yeah. I just <laughs> thought we a way that we could do a joint strength test involving yeah. chairs placed at random in a Ooh. uh in I like where this is going <laughs> i don't in a cr- cracker barrel somewhere yes. in the south <laughs> oh matt matt let's, or oh not, maybe not cracker barrel but we could my favorite one of our favorite place to eat in columbia south carolina when we lived there uh was uh lizard's thicket and there would be ample not opportunity advertiser. not an advertiser their uh their their slogan was country cooking makes you good looking Oh boy! Yeah. All right. Let's let's uh, let's back out of this conversation now. Uh, so the next question came from Bob, who wrote, "My low angle block plane is just a cheap <laughs> mat. I mean, really, take your cold and go somewhere else. All right, I'm Come on, ahead. already. My my low angle block plane. Now the water cup. Nice. That's good, Matt. Thank you. My um." My low-angle block plane is just a cheap, modern, vintage Stanley. The sole's not totally flat, and I'm not sure it's even possible to get it there. I upgraded to a Hawk Iron some years ago, and that helped a lot. 
There's some slop in the mouth adjustment, so the flatness of the sole can change when I adjust the mouth. The thing that clamps the blade in place is inconsistent. The adjustment for depth and angle are both pretty inconsistent, too. Even so, I use it a lot. I get a halfway decent result with it, but it could be better. I think it's time to move up. I'm strongly considering getting the Lee Nielsen Rabbit Block Plane. I do enough tenoning that it would be nice to have a block plane that could also tune in my tenons. Now, you guys have debated regular block planes versus rabbit block planes a bunch of times, but I can't remember if you've ever answered this question before. Yes, uh, definitively. Um, (laughs) Mike was wrong. (laughs) So basically, he's trying to figure out, um, does he just get another regular block plane or does he go with a rabbit block plane that he might be able to do more with? With a single plane. Anyway, we have to preface the answer mm-hmm. thusly. Oh, boy. If all you can afford right now and all you are able to purchase is a block plane, there's one answer. If, uh, however... A block plane. Rabbit block plane. You um, can af- if you can afford, <laughs> because you're an extremely wealthy executive art director <laughs> at a world-renowned magazine, you can, if you can afford an infinite number of planes, there's a different answer. Yeah. That's fair to say, right? Okay. Here we go. <laughs> uh, get yourself a block plane. Uh, the block rabbit plane, I think, is a false value. Uh, it's a false savings. If you need to trim up rabbits um, where you want to get right into the corner, get yourself, in addition to a nice block plane, uh, an inexpensive vintage rabbit plane. You can get them for 20 30 bucks. 30 um, and I think people never use them because I find them all over the place. It's one of the more readily available vintage tools, and they work really well. So get yourself a, a rabbit plane and a block plane, and I think that's going to serve you a lot better than a block rabbit plane. And then eventually you've got to get a shoulder plane at some point. So that would be my third tool. The block rabbit plane is certainly not a substitute for a shoulder plane, nor would I always want to be using – because a block plane, I use that all the time. Um, it's for, for probably one of the most widely used tools, whereas something I'm going to clear up rabbits with, mm-hmm. I want that set up perfectly, really sharp and ready to go. And I don't think my block plane under normal circumstances, I would hate to have to then depend on that after I've been chamfering tons of edges and stuff to be really exactly mm. the way I want it to get in and clean up, you know, tenon cheeks or something like that. Right. And you'd hate to have to go sharpen a blade. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? It's not what I'm saying. All right. Also, so you... I, Both of you, by the way, would be wrong if Phil Lowe were in the room. That's right, because... Uh, a block plane. Block plane's a carpenter's a, tool. It's a carpenter's <laughs> tool. Uh, he'd do it all with a chisel faster than us. Um, well, I will, I'll say this. So, Mike, you've lived... How long have you been in Connecticut? Um, 18 years. 18 years. Connecticut is very used tool rich. Yep, so is eBay. Uh, you can't trust what you buy on eBay, though. I mean, you got because a, a rabbit plane's got to be square. You got it's got to be square. So you're Not taking really. that risk. Not really. <clears throat> it can be acute, but it can't be obtuse. Uh, uh, that's true. Anyways, I, I let's just get back to the point before we go too far down that line. Because when I lived in South Carolina. And I'll tell you this about Florida. There's not a single used vintage tool in Florida, except for the guys down, you know, in Tampa, St. Pete area. <laughs> but well, wait a minute. Yeah, um, South Carolina, there were no used tools anywhere. There were none. And um, so, depending on where you live, you may not be able to find that. 
if all you want to do is get one block plane and you want to be able to trim tenons, a rabbit block plane works very well. It's not like they're defective tools or anything. They work great. Mm. Mike doesn't look like he's convinced. No, Mike's not. <laughs> he's not sold. I'm, I'm letting the silence do the talking here. <laughs> Just let the silence no, do it, the heavy it's, lifting. It's a nice tool. It's a beautiful plane. You have one. Do you have one as well, Ed? I have all three. <laughs> That's another plug for the web producer uh, position. Big salary. You'll be able to get three block planes. It's a, it's a gorgeous tool. <laughs> I, I never argue against anyone buying a, a nice tool, and that's a nice tool. However, I think if you eventually own a nice big wide shoulder plane and a nice block plane, your block rabbit plane probably won't see a lot of use. That would be my guess. Unless that just becomes your regular block I plane. I think ultimately it depends upon your style of work. Yeah. So I, I, I use how you work quite a bit. I think, yeah. it's a sh- I think it's a short-term solution, which I, offers you the opportunity to buy more tools in the future, so that's not bad. I think it does amazingly well for tenons, cheeks, and then I don't have to use a big honking, large shoulder, honking. Pl- shoulder plane on it my shoulders. It is a wide blade, and it is pretty good for that, but I find that when I use it in conjunction with a shooting board and it has that fence, because it's sort of a low profile, I got big, meaty hands. I like bust my thumb knuckle on the fence of my little shooting board when I'm trying to hold on to that tiny little plane. And we go back to the old adage, a good craftsman never blames his tools. So we see the problem is not with the rabbit plane, but with Mike's giant meaty paws. (laughs) (laughs) So what line of work would you suggest Mike go into? (laughs) What do you mean? With his meaty paws. With his meaty paws? I don't know. Masseuse? Bouncer? Bouncer. Pat down guy at the airport. <laughs> Pat down guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen, let's. Um, we'll never agree on this. No, we? probably not. No, but uh, I think I hurt Mike's feelings. Oh well. Yeah. Let's uh, let's move into our first and only segment for this week. Um, listen, the internet is full of tutorials on pretty much everything, and uh, woodworking how-to is no exception. There are gobs and gobs of internet woodworkers out there, folks who teach, folks who blog about their journeys, folks who simply like to show off their work. David Picciuto, also known as the Drunken Woodworker, is one of them. Every week, <coughs> David runs his video blog titled The Weekly Woodworking Wrap-Up Review, in which he chronicles what's happening in online woodworking, not to mention his online tutorials. He's had some success, and he's here with us today on Shop Talk Live. Hi, David. Hey, how you doing? Um, I have a, a serious question to start off with. You alluded to this just about 30 seconds ago. Uh, have you been drinking? It is one twenty-five in the afternoon, so not yet. So despite your I moniker, you, you, you have a, a cutoff point? A starting point. <laughs> it's really disappointing, actually. I, I know, I know. Um, it, it's, it's, it's Thursday. I, I, two, three days a week, I have to, like, at least wait till two, three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon, you know. Um, now, I, I feel it uh, fair to inform you that you now have some competition in the beard department. Uh, beard, B-E-A-R-D department, as Matt is growing a sizable uh, fur coat around his face. It's colossal. It's, it's colossal, which, which got me to thinking that we could probably team you two up in, like, a 70s detective drama called Beard to Beard. <laughs> you guys could have like like a bubble light, and Telly Savalas would be your boss at the station. All right. Um, well, anyhow, let's get started. So, David, who are you, and uh, and what is your background? 
I am David Picciuto, otherwise known as the Drunken Woodworker, um, and I don't actually drink all the time, and I never drink in the shop. I just want to make that clear. Um, Fair enough. I I, uh, I make woodworking videos and blog about woodworking for a living, and I make a every every week I do what's called the weekly woodworking wrap up review. Uh, it's a video that I release on Tuesday, and I talk about like the latest woodworking news and and highlight other woodworkers making videos and doing cool stuff. And and if I read this correctly in your bio, you've you kind of stumbled into woodworking what like three years ago or so? Not not that long ago. Yep, yep, about three and a half years ago. Uh, I mean, I, I took woodshop back in high school. I graduated back in '93, and. Uh, that's when high schools had wood shops. And then, you know, 20 some, 20 years later, I, 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 I never, I didn't do any woodworking outside of high school. And I was a photographer and I went to go have some of my photos frames for an art show. And I was kind of shocked at the cost of custom framing. And I was like, I can probably do this and went out and bought a miter saw. And, and the thing is, I never actually made those picture frames. But I got that miter saw, and I started watching woodworking videos on YouTube and listening to podcasts, and it just kind of took off from there. Okay. And then, so how, and what, what line of work were you in before, uh, before all this? He just said he was a photographer. Adam. I know, but you, I'm, I'm leading up to something. You were doing, you were doing web design <laughs> See, of some sort. He, yes. Uh, the photography was a hobby of mine. Oh, um, but my actual Thank job you. was I worked for an ad agency. And I was the web developer there. Ah, so okay. That, that so you had some technical background to start doing video and have a website and all that kind of stuff. Is that right? Yes, and I think working for the ad agency kind of gave me a kickstart in the the marketing department. I knew how to do, you know, set up a website and how to sell myself and and all that fun stuff. You've done a pretty good job branding yourself. Yeah, branding's pretty important. When uh, when you have a, a one man business, you you have to look good so people will will trust you. Right now, do you mean physically look good? Because <laughs> well, <laughs> Matt looks terrible. We all yeah. we all know I physically look good. Because then I, I'm out. I got to stay at fun woodworking forever. <laughs> so what was know, the I, what what was the evolution of the site? So now you okay? You've got this miter saw. Um, you start doing some woodworking, and what happens next? Well, um, I, I came across a video by Steve Ramsey on how to make a bandsaw box, and I just gotten a bandsaw, and so I made this. So I, I made this box, and I thought, that was really cool. Um, but generally, I, I think most bandsaw boxes are pretty ugly. And I was like, well, I'm going to use my graphic design background. I went to school for graphic design and just ended up being a web developer. But I used my graphic design background to kind of design my own bandsaw boxes that are more about shapes instead of like this weird amoeba looking like one that you see all the time. You right, know? right. And, um, and I started, people started to like them and, and comment and share these photos and and it kind of led to me starting a blog and a Facebook page and all that. 
Yeah, you are right about one thing about bandsaw boxes. <laughs> There's like, you know, I've looked at bandsaw boxes before, bandsaw and boxes books before. And, you know, there'll be like seven or eight or ten box projects in there. And you'll keep seeing those people, you know, like, oh, that guy bought that book because he just he made that box. And there's another right. box making book that I think is from the Taunton Press that I own. And I see that's just normal boxes. And I see boxes from that book all the time, all over the place. And it's unfortunate that uh, you're right. They're kind of a, amoeba looking. Amor they're amorphic and like too yeah. organic. Yeah. So yeah. I should I should ask you both, um, Matt uh, and David, uh, your thoughts about flocking. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, the, the great flocking shootout of 2015. All right, David, you flock? Sure. You like flocking? I I do love flocking. Um, I actually want to hear why Matt doesn't like flocking. So yeah, Matt, I can tell you why I do. Well, that seems a little long. I was hoping you would say why you do, so he I just could say why I don't. He just completely <laughs> <Right>. disarmed you, <laughs> Matt. Well, I hope I, can, I I hope I can say this without being offensive, but I highly probably doubt not. It. Probably not. I um I just think it looks cheap. You know, if it, I I like having some type of uh something in the box when you open it up. Uh flocking, I I just I don't like the way it looks or the way it feels. What I like when I open it up, I you know, I can go to a fabric store and find a fabric that in its style or design is, you know, if it's a contemporary box, it's a contemporary uh, design. And then I can get a color that complements or pops against the, the, the color of the box. <clears throat> and I can pad it underneath it. Or if you want something more minimal, you can go and get leather. Get suede, which has a really lustrous, beautiful feel. I think suede is sort of nature's flocking. Suede is nature's yeah. flocking. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you know, I know it's really snotty of me to say I don't like flocking, but... That's crap. all right. That's that's your branding, Matt. That's right. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Matt Kinney, okay, the, well, the jerk woodworker. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, you own a bandsaw box, don't you? I do. You gave me one. I, I very much appreciate I, that. I do. Yes. I sent you what I called a hate gift. <laughs> uh, a, a, a few months ago, uh, I heard I heard you say that you didn't really care for bandsaw boxes and you didn't care for flocking. So I made you a bandsaw box with flocking and and sent it to you. I think I actually sent it to Ed to give to you. Yep. Yeah. Is a joke. I now I on the other and, hand got a nice T-shirt, Matt, which I do wear. I have it. Well. <laughs> But I love the fact that you made that and sent it to me. That's exactly the attitude that people should have. If I say or someone else says I don't like something, you say, you know, F you, you know, I still like it. <laughs> this is a clean iTunes show, Matt. <laughs> well, no. You say flock you. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know your thoughts on – now Now, be absolutely honest. Uh-oh. Is there the box that I sent you? Was there a better solution than flocking? Mm. Um, See, I'm trying to turn this this conversation into my favor, so right. I, I made Matt go first. But yeah, <laughs> I, I would say you know I don't know what it looked like before there was flocking, but I can imagine if 
just thinking of okay, if I were to make a bandsaw in box, what would the interior look like when it was when it was done? I would say no flocking would be better than flocking. Okay. I I am not so anti-flocking. No. Well, I think that everything has its place. It also I it just well, I am not going to say However, I'm start really However, the edge. with the tones <laughs> of the of the woods of the wood in the box, it would be nice like it was the flocking was in the little uh, the little pull-out drawer, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. So I wonder if you had um along the top of each side of that drawer, if you had a little kerf cut into which you could glue one end of a piece of leather and then wrap that leather well, glue to the bottom around. You wouldn't even have to have that kerf. kerf. You could just glue it in yeah. and around. Um, it would be kind of cool, though, if it came out of the wood and then curved down and and then back into gotcha. a kerf again. But I'll also say this one more th- I feel really bad because I like David, and I'm not, I don't want to pick on him. Or, <laughs> you know, but um, part of the reason I'm, I like to make furniture and make things is that I want them to feel – I like to make things that are – that look as custom – made as possible Mm -hmm. and to me flocking i believe you know flocking suggests a little bit to me like a little bit of Mm store-bought and a little mass-produced whereas if i go and put as much thought into selecting a piece of fabric for example to uh, cover the bottom of the box with that is a continuation of the design and the creation of that box that to i think uh makes it feel more custom but, okay. You know. I, I, I'll tell you why I use flocking and why I, and, and why I like to use it is I do feel that it is a continuation of the design process where I will choose a color of flocking, usually black, but I'll choose a color that complements the colors of the woods that I'm using. And the reason I put flocking in there and not leave it bare is if you're using it for a jewelry box, you want to have that when you when you place your jewelry in there, you want it to have a soft landing, I guess. And yeah, but ninety nine percent of boxes are used to store pot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> of course, you're, you're suggesting but, that the the. the you know what? I'm not even. I'm. I'm going to stay away from this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and something that I do that I've never seen anybody else do in bandsaw boxes is that not only do I flock the inside of the drawer, but I also flock the inside of the body of the box. So the drawer actually rides on the flocking as you pull it in and out. And you, I would think you would agree that it creates a nice easy open and close action where it just feels smooth where it's not wood rubbing on wood yeah i did notice that and that is a very nice feel it's a that's a nice touch and that fills it helps fill that that saw blade curve that you use to cut out the drawer so the drawer actually fits in the box a little bit tighter yeah that you actually just pointed out one of the problem one of my big problems with bandsaw boxes is that issue but we're starting to get really far off track aren't we well as as fascinating as all this flock talk <laughs> is um i jeez <laughs> louise all right i'm gonna i'm gonna move on because i i have a whole slew of questions here and um if we okay. if we steer back to your site i'm kind of curious so you you start blogging you're like all right i'm kind of getting into woodworking I'm going to start blogging some of this stuff. When you set up your site, did you have any particular goal in mind, or did this whole idea of becoming a full-time blogger and whatnot, did that just kind of fall into your lap uh, via serendipity? 
fell into my lap. Um, I, I set up a blog as a way to kind of document my process at first. And then I got a lot of interest in the dancehall boxes I was making. So then I started selling patterns. I'm like, hey, this is, this is kind of catching on. And so once I started to make a little bit of money doing that, I'm like, I wonder how far I can go with this, you know. Um, but not really paying too much attention to that. I just, I just really adored the online community. And, and like, um, there's a certain bit of je- jealousy that I have for people like Mark Spagnuolo and, and Steve Ramsey. Like, oh, that's, that's so cool. I, I love what they do. And then I started making the videos. And th- that's when the train really started started moving for me is is the video. So maybe I had a little bit of me that wanted to do it full time, but mostly it was it just started. I started it to document my process and sell a few plans. Yeah, you're you're up to somewhere around fifty thousand YouTube subscribers now. Yes, and uh, that's all. That's all happened in the past year. Huh. It's been a fun ride. So, so what was the uh, what was the moment, the watershed moment, when you decided, you know what, the hell with this, I'm quitting my day job and I'm gonna try and, and make a go of this full time. So back back early summer, um, I was I, I I really loved my job, but there was certain parts of it that I was really frustrating, and I would I would bring that home, and I was like, ugh, I, it's. Being a web developer, you run into all these technical issues all the time, and sometimes you don't know how to solve them, and it kind of eats away at you. And and at the same time, my YouTube channel was growing really fast, and my website was growing as far as people coming to my website. And I couldn't – it hit a ceiling where I couldn't help it grow anymore because I just did not have any more time in my life. Mm-hmm. And so – I kind of kind of sat down with my wife, or at that time she was my girlfriend, and she's like, "Hey, I think you should quit your job and, and do this and see what happens." <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I was like, "All right, well, if you're on board, let's let's do this." And I had to look back. And you are you are truly a, a one man band, huh? I mean, you're you're looking for a- advertisers, you're videotaping, you're writing scripts, you're doing everything all on your own. I am doing it all on my own, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that is cool. So what then, okay, so here's, here's another one for you. There, as you, you've mentioned a few of them, uh, there are a lot of internet woodworkers out there. Um, you know, there's uh, Steve Ramsey, there's Mark, uh, there's uh, Shannon Rogers, there's uh, MWA, all sorts of folks out there. Um, what, makes, uh, what makes your site different? What makes you different? What separates you from the pack? Because you're doing something right. I- yeah, I focus. Uh, if if you wanna if you wanna do this for a living, or even even if you wanna do it for fun, but just grow an audience, you have to find a niche. And you can't just say, "Hey, I'm a woodworker. Here's my woodworking stuff." And so my niche is small, crafty items that you can then sell either online or at handmade events. Sure. So. Uh, I, I focus all my energy on these little small boxes and and little wine displays and kitchen items and, and stuff like that. Stuff you can make in a day or in a weekend, you right. know. And that's I, and I focus on design 
all my I try to make sure all my stuff is unique, and I'm constantly working on my style. You know, Sam Maloof had a style, and so when I get to that age, I want somebody to look at my stuff and say, "Oh yeah, that's the that's the Pachuto style." And so I think that's what separates me is what I focus on. Hey, David, uh, this is Mike, and just um, with all the work you're doing with your uh, website and everything, do you still have time to do as much woodworking as you'd like to do? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I'm, I'm, I try to do a small woodworking project a week. Like Tuesdays I release the wrap-up video, and on Fridays I try to release a project video. And, you know, this week I'm working on on beer mugs next week is going to be a, a coffee table. Um, even though that coffee table falls outside of my, my focus, I need a coffee table myself. Cool. So, um, because I, because of what I do, I actually have more time than I want to do woodworking. You know, I, it's, um, like, Hey, I want to, I want to make something. Well, it's, I can make it for myself and then film it and share it with everybody else. It becomes part of my everyday routine and my job. So you just touched upon um, one of my other questions, which was, okay, you're known for small projects like boxes, and then I, I saw you rebuilt some stereo speakers and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to ask you if you had any plans to branch out and build uh, more, you know, any more traditional furniture. You're doing a coffee table, you said. Have you built any, yeah. um, have you experimented with any other case pieces or, or tables or anything like that, or is this your first foray into that neck of the woods? Um, no, I, I, I haven't done a whole lot of case pieces, but uh, if you went to my website right now and you went to my project section, you'll see a two-door glass cabinet that I built about a year ago, um, you know, with coping stick and face frame and, and, and everything. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I see it. I just yeah. haven't documented any of that stuff. And so this coffee table will be the first bigger project that I do document. Got oh, it. cool. Yeah, we're looking at it right now. Uh, so, David, in the same way that, that you were sort of inspired and learned from folks like Steve and Mark, I'm sure you've got guys coming to you um, who are just getting into the craft. Like, what do you tell them, and, and what do you find to be the biggest challenges for folks who are coming from, like, a completely non-woodworking background and want to try making this kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest questions that I get is, where do I start? What tools do I need first? And... I think everybody gets asked that question all the time. And my answer to that is don't buy the tools first. Come up with a project first. You know, like I want to get started in woodworking. Build a, I want to build a stool. So what do I need to build a step stool? Well, you could probably do it with a drill and, and uh, a little jigsaw. So I tell them to come up with a project first and then buy the tools for that project. Very cool. So you just get away from the whole notion that you need an entire shop full of tools and machines before you even crack open that first project. Yeah, because you're going to buy tools that you don't need. Right. Or you, maybe maybe you find that you want to go down the hand tool route. Or maybe you buy hand tools and you find that you want to go down the power tool route. Or you know, you, you, you come up with a project first and then that'll actually save you money in, in the long run. Yeah, actually, I think that's really good advice because I know when I started uh, woodworking, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was make a little garden box for my wife to carry gardening tools around in. And I literally 
thought, okay, I, I drew it out, and I was like, well, this is the what I'm going to need to do. Oh, well, I went to Home Depot or Lowe's or something, and I just walked through the tool aisles thinking, what tools do they have that I could use to make this thing right. that I want to make? So that little garden toad ended yeah. up costing you $752. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, none of the tools that I bought to make that garden toad do I still use. They were all crap. Uh, but... Um, well, but that's how but I bu- used to buy new tools. Like, it did, you yes. The, you can buy the cheap tools is that gets you into it. And then you learn, you'll learn as time goes on, like, where you want to spend your money. And so, you know. That's right. and, and I, whatever tools you can. And I still buy tools based on uh, what I need to do to make the furniture I want to make, you know. So it's never do I buy something just to buy it? It's always, well, I need to do X and the tools I have now really don't let me do that efficiently or well or smartly. So what could I get mm-hmm. that would allow me to do that? And, uh, and then I end up with a new tool. So right. somehow I can always figure out, Oh, well I could do it better if I had X, <laughs> but, uh, that's or not even, sometimes it's not even better. Sometimes, um, a certain tool will make the job actually more fun, you know, yes. like, if you uh, if you're not really into cutting mortises, you know maybe you'll you'll buy a, a festival domino and like that will make the project more fun for you. Or maybe it's more fun for you to make the mortises. So it's not always about better; it's about what's more enjoyable. Well, yeah, it takes uh, buying the right tool for the job as you want to do it removes frustration right. and increases enjoyment yeah. as a result. Yeah. So I have to ask uh, David Picciuto, uh who are the woodworkers who inspire you? Who are you tuned on, tuned mm. into? If if anybody in particular. Well, yeah, I, at, at the very first, it was uh, the Wood Whisperer and Steve mm-hmm. Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Um, and these days, it's more. Um, I like seeing people do stuff outside of. Woodworking, so they have woodworking, but they add an element mixed media to it. Mixed media. So Jimmy Diresta and Bob Claggett from I Like to Make Stuff. Those two guys, they, they truly inspire me. Like, and I know that they inspire me because when I build something, I when I'm done, I, I think to myself, I wonder what Jimmy and Bob would think of this. Mm-hmm. You know. And so they inspire me. People like Sam Maloof inspires me, even though I'm not going to make a Maloof chair or a rocker anytime in the next year or so, he inspires me because he, because of his style and you recognize his furniture instantly. Um, Eames, Ray and Charles Eames are a huge inspiration on me because of their, their, uh, design. Mm-hmm. And you, you see a, you see an Eames chair and you're like, you instantly, you know it, it immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, uh, any new big plans coming up for the next year for Drunken Woodworker? Um, Rehab. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think something I want to, well, I just got a welder two days ago. Nice. So, I'm going to learn welding. Uh, I've been reading some books lately about getting into electronics, so I want to see what I can do to incorporate that into my woodworking. And something that I want to do more of is things like that speaker project that I just did. Mm-hmm. So I had these Sony speakers in my living room and I just, I tore them apart. There's nothing wrong with them. They're fairly new, 
but I just tore them apart and rebuilt them and made them look the way I wanted to look. And so the next project like that is going to be my turntable. I'm just going to, my record player, I'm going to tear it apart, remove all the plastic, and make a wood case for it. I like it. I actually, I would love yeah. to do that. Ooh, That's cool. I like this idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. I thought you oh, were go. saying something. Um, oh, I was going to I was going to bring up the um, huge, huge, enormous online controversy over how much you're charging per hour for your works. One hundred and forty-two dollars, <laughs> David. Really? We were shocked so, and disgusted. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. So uh, another common question I get all the time is like, how do I price my work? Mm-hmm. And some people go by the formula of cost of materials plus time spent. And I don't go by that because I'm not a factory, you know. Yeah. I, I'm done with the piece, and I look at it, I'm like, I give it a value of what I think it's worth. Now, maybe my time influences that price, but I think of my work, and this could be, controversial as well but i think of my work as art and not manufactured pieces so right i I think when you when you sit down a lot of people make that mistake when they try to price their furniture of thinking okay well i've got materials i've got labor uh, you know, maybe they go so far as to say, I've got overhead, I've got this, that, and the other thing. And then they think, okay, well, well I got to do that. And maybe they are smart enough to factor in a little bit of profit. And I think, I mean, that's one way to do it. But I, I agree with you. It, I, I would never do that. What I do is I think, mm-hmm. okay, I've made this thing. Uh, how much do I want for it? And mm-hmm. if someone will pay that, then what's the big deal? You know, it's uh, – and I always – I mean, I when I was uh, first started, when I the first few commissions I did, I hope these people aren't listening. But, yeah, Matt, but you didn't sell too many of those seventeen thousand dollar coffee tables, you know? <laughs> right? Seventeen thousand dollar napkin holders. <laughs> yeah. um, I I a lot of times I factored in. Okay, well, you know what? If I do this job and I charge X, I'll be able to afford to buy X tool and still have money in my pocket. And mm-hmm. so I just factored that in, and that's what I, you know, and I got the money. I got the price I asked for. So furniture, yeah. something is worth what people will pay for it. That's what it's worth. And what yeah. it costs you to make it has no bearing on that, really. Right, Mike? Yeah. And <laughs> when, you, when you sell something for a high price, it might make it a little bit harder to sell. Maybe you don't sell something right away or... Maybe you just won't find a buyer for it. But when you sell something for a really low price, you you devalue yourself and you devalue the entire craft of woodworking. And so somebody shouldn't somebody shouldn't expect to get uh, a dining room table for two hundred dollars, right? Right. But but. People do because that's what they expect. Because that's what they see in the in the stores, or they think um, you know their cousin can build something real cheap because he knows how to do it. So yeah, I th- yeah, I think another mis- mistake that furniture makers and woodworkers make is that they feel like they have to compete at the low end of the price spectrum. It's like, well, I got to yeah. lower my prices because that'll make me more competitive with target or whatever 
And I mean, I've always thought the opposite. It's like I want to distinguish myself as much as possible from Target or Kmart or Ikea. So you instead of lowering the price, you want to raise the price. Right. You know? And I think um, they're just, there's tool manufacturers that do the same thing. You know, you can, you can get a hand plane that's probably good enough for X price, but this other company or this other guy will sell it for like three times as much. And it's, and maybe it's not that much better, but he's, he or she is trying to distinguish himself from the, 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 the that crowd, you know? Yes. I would, <laughs> I would on the hand plane front. I I I do understand where you're going with that, but on the hand plane front, I would tend to disagree. Well, I think David's maybe talking more about boutique makers. Yes, is that right, David? Yeah. Like, an, like a guy yeah, yeah. in his shop making a plane, like an infill plane, perhaps gotcha. or something. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. All right, now the most important question, the final question, and the most... Yes, go ahead, sorry. One more thing. I would just like to point out before David goes that, yes, David sent me a bandsaw box as a gift, a hate gift. (laughs) (laughs) I sent back to David... Oh, what did you send him? A nice little box that I made on the lathe, a nice little round box, as a love love gift. Oh. (laughs) You've gotten over the hate... It, there's no hate, <laughs> but I and did. It, I did send him. A, I send him a box back as a gift. Right on. And it was it was a, a very beautiful box. And um, speaking of covering up the wood, you covered up part of the wood, did you not? Uh, yeah, with, I painted with, it with paint. The, yeah, the with lid, milk with, paint. The lid's painted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, and, that's um, good for covering up defects and drill holes and, <laughs> and stuff. That covers up all the wood putty he uses. <laughs> that's right. That little actually it wasn't wood. It was by the time I was done, it was nothing but bondo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have no problem with something like uh, paint and covering up wood surfaces at all. No, I don't have a problem. Just with don't that. put flocking on it. Yeah, just don't put flocking on it. <laughs> all right. All right. Are you guys all ready for the the next? Uh, all right. This is the most important question. All right. Okay. has nothing to do with woodworking. Yeah. Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. This will okay. allow you to understand how much of a geek I truly am. Um, the trailer for Star Wars Episode Seven: yay or nay? Okay, here's my thoughts on this. It actually <laughs> Please looks proceed. Pretty, it looks pretty good. Now, the Episodes 1, 2, and 3, the... the the latest ones, I did not like them. And the garbage. reason I did not like garbage. them... They were garbage. Garbage. Because they were too busy visually, right? Indeed. If you go back and you look at uh, the very first three, episodes four, five, and six, visually, they're real simple. They're, it's in a desert, or it's in a wooded area, or they're in space, and, and it's not very busy. And the, the ones from the 90s or whenever they came out, there's just there's all this stuff going on. It's moving and there's so many, uh, so much CGI, but the new preview for episode seven looks like it's going back to that simplistic look. One huge advantage yes. that the new trailer has over the previous yeah. three movies that were just made, no Jar Jar Binks. Thank you. And, yes. <laughs> and no horrible acting by that dude that played Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> so, all right, I will. Got that going I'll wrap it. it up with this: the worst scene in Episode Three, the one where Darth Vader first appears. Right, 
they all the robots mm-hmm. have done their work on Darth on Anakin. He's now yes. Darth Vader, yeah. and he asks where Padme is, and the Emperor tells him, "Oh, you killed her," you know. And then he goes, he breaks out of the the bonds of, on the table like Frankenstein, and goes, right. "No!" Like right. I laughed so loud in the theater when <laughs> I saw that. It was like as if that the, they contacted the guys at The Simpsons, yes. and like if you were to write Homer. Doing, you know, finding out uh, that he was Darth Vader and Padme was dead. How would Homer respond? And that's how the Simpsons no! would do it. No, <laughs> stupid Padme. He, <laughs> there was an image online um, the other day, and it was it was amazing. It was a picture of Billy Joel, the 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 singer, the artist, and the way the lighting was hitting him because he doesn't have hair now. And he had a harmonica around his face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it looked exactly like Darth Vader when the helmet comes when off. When the helmet comes side off. side-by-side picture. All right. And it, it was amazing. It was exact. And if you haven't seen it, Google Darth Vader and Billy Joel. Billy Joel. I'm totally looking that All up. Right, one more geek out thing before yes. we say goodbye to David. Okay. Because uh, Mike's sitting next to me. The three Hobbit movies right. are... An offense to humanity. They are horrible. Absolutely horrible, yeah. Mike. Mike likes them, but they are terrible. That's all I got to say. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Instead of the uh, extended director's cuts of these films, I'd like to see all three combined into two. One. One, yes. yes. Take about two-thirds of it out, stay with the book, and I think there's a there's a good movie in there somewhere. I would agree. Okay. I agree. But the three films as is, which I haven't even seen Use the, the microphone, Matt. The three films as is, and I haven't seen the third one yet, but I'm assuming that it sucks as bad as the second one did. They're terrible. <laughs> they're, they're just not good. They're not good. Poor Mike. Yeah. All right. And I love Tolkien. Well, more to come. We'll, yeah. probably, we'll probably have you on again, David, and uh, we'll... we'll I think a, a splinter yeah. podcast coming up. A splinter podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We will yeah. we will keep the lines of communication open and uh thanks for coming on. All right. Yes. Uh I, I if I if I could quickly say Yep, go for it. Um to promote myself. If if you guys remember, I have a book coming out in August and it's all about bandsaw boxes. Don't know what the title of the book is yet. We're still working on it, but you can look forward to that, and it should be in all the major bookstores. And I, we can find you at drunkenwoodworker.com. That is correct. I, I suggest Matt Kinney hates bands on boxes. That would be a good I title. I bet you that, that URL is going to be registered in about <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, we're going to put your face on the cover. Awesome. All right, David, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, David. Take care. Thanks, David. All right, now moving on from David Picciuto. Matt, I just have to say, yep. you have to get over your anti-flocking no, sentiments. I'm never going to give that up. No, I'm just not going to do it. Sorry. You know what? I'm thinking, let's shelf the rest of the woodworking questions for the entire episode and talk Star Wars. <laughs> Everybody right. hates C-3PO in this room, right? <laughs> Our next question from Emperor Palpatine. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, Steve writes... This is our next question for real. No more Star Wars, I promise. Steve writes, My uncle was going to throw out his table saw and asked if I wanted it. Without any thought whatsoever, I said yes. Now that I have it... That always ends well. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I have it, I'm not sure how to make the best use of it. I already have a decent cabinet saw set up just as I need it. This additional saw is just a portable table saw from a big box store. It has a rolling cart included. But it's more for a job site than fine woodworking, I would guess. 
I was thinking of setting it up with a dado set, more or less permanently, but didn't know if a lower-end saw would be appropriate for something like that. So my question is, if you were given a lower-end table saw, what would you do with it? Uh, like, so the, right right off the I, like, bat, I like that. I mean, the idea if you can have two table saws, I mean, yeah. that's awesome. And if you do, you definitely want to set the two saws up, like one for ripping, one for cross-cutting, one for dados. I think dados. Greg Paolini has one just set up for dados. I like the idea of a dedicated dado, dado saw, yes. but it really depends on whether the saw can handle that. Because you're talking about joinery, and you're really talking about a saw that it's got to be true. There can't be any run out in the arbors. The arbor has to be long enough for a dado blade, which a lot of the job site saws are not. It's got to be vibration-free. It has to work well as a tool. So, right. You know, if the, if the tool is cheap to the point where it's not going to do the job, it's not going to serve you well in any means whatsoever. Yeah, if your uncle was going to throw it out, I mean, it suggests to me that it's probably... That it wasn't <laughs> one of the... Because there are a couple of higher-end job site saws that, that actually are, are pretty decent. Yes. Um, but it's there's only like a handful, like a small handful that are capable of really accurate, repeatable right. work. Right. So, you know, just to, Yeah, like Mike said, it depends on the uh, condition of the saw whether or not it can be tuned up to perform joinery cuts accurately. Yes. Uh, and if you want to use a dado set, it's the arbor has to be long enough to right. take a dado. And the motor's got to be strong enough to turn it. I mean, it may have a long arbor, but a little uh, universal motor that really can't turn a 13, 16th inch wide dado set. Right. But uh, actually, I think I, I do know something this gentleman can do with this table saw that would yes. be useful. Mm. Are you ready? Do tell. All right. So... It's got one of those nice tubular bases, right? Mm -hmm. Drill a hole through one of the legs, mm -hmm. all right? Mm -hmm. Get a chain mm -hmm. and a bolt. Mm -hmm. Bolt that chain to the leg, mm -hmm. all right? Mm -hmm. now take, How thick a chain are we talking about here? Uh, you know, probably maybe a quarter inch. Okay. I have no idea it's what kinda that means. It's kind of beefy. Kind of beefy. All right. I don't know what that means in chain talk, but take that whole contraption, mm -hmm. put it in your boat. Okay. Now, the next time you're out on the water and mm -hmm. you want to stop for lunch or something— mm -hmm. Make sure the chain's attached to your boat. Mm -hmm. Take the saw, throw it in the water. Mm -hmm. Yes. Also good, coincidentally, uh, for getting rid of snitches out in the <laughs> out in the middle of you know the Hudson Bay or something off yes. the Long Island Sound. Yes. Get a gas generator that has a socket on it. <laughs> oh, I see what you're no, saying. No, no, no. Long Island Sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, you you took that pretty dark there. <laughs> I thought you meant like. You know, <laughs> Take it out into the woods and plug it in and, you know, no. dice no, it up. No, I didn't mean that, Matt. No. No. All right. That's, that's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so, it, it might, so it sounds like it might be a little dicey trying to use it for fine furniture parts depending upon the quality of the saw. Yeah. That's, that's your big problem. Yeah, good short answer. Yeah. Yes. It all okay. depends on the saw. However, it reminds me of the story that Mike had of at the, at the junkyard. I don't even want to talk yeah. about it. <laughs> yep. Poor Mike. He he spotted a beautiful uh, yeah. old Walker Turner table saw at yeah. the uh, in the dump at the dump and and was like, nah, I don't need that. And then keeps shooting himself in the foot ever since. Just keep kicking myself because you really wanted it, right? Yeah, yeah. And you didn't take it. I was in the middle. of My shop was you just rubbed us in. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, my shop was not in a place where it was. I was to the point where I was really acquiring things. It was more getting rid of things. Yeah. But there it was. I even had to fish, worked really hard to fish the uh, rip fence out of the out of the, the little dumpster part of it. A little seven-inch benchtop walker turner, but must have been 30s or 40s cast iron. But we all know the end of that story because I've, I've lived it and you've lived it as well. You with your miter, your miter cut trimmer. Yes. And me with my Japanese super surfacer. 
you, oh. you take these free things tool, that are tool awesome. Bombs. They're tool bombs. It, yeah. yeah. Like, what just, are you going to do with this? It thing? sits in my yeah. shop. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, you know, it's funny because I, uh, a few years ago I was at uh, Nakashima's place and I noticed in the chair studio uh, they use a little, little old Walker Turner four inch joiner. That's oh, the little joiner in the oh, chair cool. studio. It's this awesome. old, it looks like a chunk of junk, but it gets the job yep. done. That's all you need yep. for That's chairs. That's all you need. Yeah. Um, anyhow, so let's move on to our next question. It comes from our old friend, Chris Hudson, who writes, Mike's, Chris Hudson, Chris is incidentally the only guy whose last name I ever read because he, he's always consistently sending in pretty good questions. Yes. Um, and now I feel like I've gotten to know Chris. Um, if you live nearby, I'd probably buy him a beer. Hmm. Hmm. Anyhow. I don't know why I'm digressing there. Chris Hudson writes, Mike's single board side table series is shaping up as a really nice video workshop, but I can't resist a question even if a bit early. Regarding the tabletop, with the cathedrals going in different directions on the two boards, are you still planning on a hand-planed final surface or what? So to fill people in who may not know about this, this is our latest video series that's running now. It's called the single board side table. And in one of the episodes, Mike glues up a top, a tabletop out of two boards. Yes. So... Um, and as he states, the cathedrals, the way you oriented the boards, the cathedrals in one board are running the opposite direction as the board next to it. Coming in from, from each, you know, opposing ends of the, of the tabletop. So two boards ripped from a thicker board. Um, this is a great question, Chris. Um, and the short answer is, yep, I'm still going to hand plane it. And the reason why uh, Chris is asking this question uh, in a little bit longer form is that uh, it looks like if the cathedrals are coming in from two different directions, that the grain is working in two different directions at that glue line. Because when you see the cathedral on the face of a board, what that is an indicator of is that the grain of the board is running at an angle to the face of the board. So you got to be really careful when you're hand planning that you're planning in the right direction. Um, now, with those cathedrals coming in from opposite ends, it looks as if the grain is running opposite, but that's not necessarily true in the same way that um, if you rip a board and you open it up like a book or a book match, both those cathedrals would be on the same end of the board. But in that case, the grain is actually running in opposite directions. Um, if you were to take that resawn board and slide the two pieces apart, keeping the, the orientation of the faces match. the same, the slip match, then you're going to have two cathedrals on the same end of the board, but the grain's running in the same direction. Right. So a lot of ways to slice and dice. So in this case, what I did is open it up like a book. So the cathedrals are on the same side. However, the grain's going in opposite directions. Um, I took one of the pieces, not flipping, but rotating it at 180 degrees. So the cathedral's coming in from the opposite side, but the grain is actually working in the same direction because the heart side of each board is alternating. Yeah, so what if you were to <clears throat> cut that board open? Yep. Open it up like a book. Flip it. Rotate it. Yes. Shake it. Yes. Bake it. <laughs> okay. And then coat it in sugar. You'd Which be, way would you hand plane it? You'd be good. You'd, you'd be good. Hand plane all good, day right, long. Right, hand plane yes. all. Right. We should also, the, the, although this is a video workshop series that yes. this guy's asking about, yes, it is. is actually also an article in the print magazine mm -hmm. that Mike did. It's already out, which yep. was in 240-something. Something, yeah. Um, and sort of the, the, the other answer is if a lot of times in, in glue-ups, if you're gluing up boards for a tabletop, the grain is going up and down 
and you're you cannot avoid at least in some areas the grain Changes. running in opposite yeah. directions right at that glue line. And for situations <laughs> like that, I would probably start hand planing um, just to flatten the boards, probably at a forty five degree angle to that glue line. And then once it was basically flat, I would go with the scraper and then sandpaper. So there's always ways around it. You want to try to make the job as easy as you can, but sometimes you can't avoid it, and you just got to buckle down and figure out how to do it. All right. Uh, Let's move on to the next question. It comes from Matt, who writes, I've been looking at smoothing planes and noticed that some of the metal-bodied planes come in steel and others in bronze. E.G. Lee Nielsen offers a number four smoother in both steel and bronze. I was hoping you might be able to discuss why a person might select one material over the other. Now, this question sort of surprised me because Matt is a senior editor at the magazine. (laughs) And I would have thought that he would have understood the differences and subtle nuances between bronze and steel-bodied plants. Or that I simply would have asked someone that works at Lee Nielsen (laughs) the many times that I see them during the year. Um, Well. So the answer to to this listener who has a wonderful name is that – there really is no functional difference, a mm. uh, significant functional difference. There's a difference in weight. The bronze is heavier, and some folks like that. The bronze is also not going to rust. However, Mike, there it, could it, be a problem with it, It right? does tarnish in that if your blade is not set deep enough to take a cut and you're taking some passes as you're trying to set the depth of the blade, you will get some black streaks on the surface of the stock. But typically once your your plane is cutting, that goes away, so it's sort of a non-issue. Right. It is a little bit heavier. Um, I do have a bronze number four. I think it's a half pound heavier than the uh, it's, it's noticeable iron yeah. number four. It could be in my imagination, but it strikes me that the bronze number four has sort of a deader feeling to it where less you know I I don't know there maybe there's less tension in the body of the plane so that you're not getting the same vibration or chatter Mm -hmm. it could resonate at a different frequency I think it does a few ohms lower it's a few ohms lower I don't know (laughs) I I definitely feel the difference because I have a I have a number four an old number four Bailey and then you know comparing that to using the number four Lee Nielsen we have in the shop here at Fine Woodworking which is bronze which is bronze yeah I detect a major difference. I mean, I find the bronze ones uh, much more pleasant mm-hmm. to push along a board. It just helps you that much more, the added weight. Bronze is a tool made for a more civilized age. <laughs> but it's, it's only available. They have one little pocket nice. plane in bronze, and they I think it's just their two, three, and four are available in bronze. Yeah, it's only the smaller ones. Because if you had like a number eight in bronze, it would weigh like 70 pounds more. <laughs> the, These aren't the hand planes you're looking for. <laughs> All right. Oh, my gosh. This is really bad. So why might you select one over the other? Those Just for the weight. Mm-hmm. I. I I love the ductile iron one. That's the one I have, the number four ductile iron. Uh, yeah, my iron bailey is fine. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I veer towards the bronze, but I don't have the big checkbook to get, you know, a Lee Nielsen smoother right now. You, well, now, you earlier you told everyone yeah. if you're a web producer, you could buy all kinds of planes, <laughs> and now you're telling them you're too poor. Uh, the jig is up. <clears throat> Um, or you were going to say something? Like I was that? just going to say it won't rust. But then again, if you're in a position where your hand lengths are rusting, yeah, you, you have, have other problems. You have, <laughs> you have other problems that need to be addressed. All right. Well, let's move on uh, to our final question of the day. It comes from Jim, who write who wrote, "Okay, okay. I now believe I need a sharp three to four TPI bandsaw blade. That's teeth perinch. I've heard your proclamation since the beginning of your podcast, and I want to adhere to your sage advice." 
Last year, I bought a 14-inch bandsaw and have since set it up according to your video using a 3-8-inch skip-tooth 4-TPI blade. I've run a number of board feet through it, rip cuts, and I've also started some small resawing with it as well. Everything appears okay, but how do I know if a bandsaw blade is sharp? Do I have to wait for things to get, quote, hinky, end quote, before I swap out the blade? Should I always do some test cuts before using it on Project Wood? If so, what kind of test cuts? Ah, blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> what's the definitive? Well, no, I mean, he's, he's, the, the crux of his question is how do you tell when your bandsaw blade is cooked? Yeah, and I've always found I'll let, uh, the short answer I've always found is, man, you can start to feel it because you're going to be pushing pretty pushing that wood through pretty hard, and mm-hmm. you're also going to notice something else when resawing, right? Well, I mean, the harder you push, the more you're tending to flex that blade backwards, and because it's in this continuous loop, it doesn't just flex straight back; it tends to bow to the left or right as it's flexed back. So, the short that. answer is is it tends to want to wander. To the left or through to the right. Or your cut will barrel rather than being perfectly straight. Yeah. And that was sort of one of the premises that um, when we conceived of this video on how to change a bandsaw blade with Asa, um, you know, we were we were using a lot of tips that Michael Fortune is a big proponent of, and, and Michael's great with a bandsaw. And one of the things Michael had said to us was that listen, you know, you really do not need all these crazy, you know, anti-drift fences and all this nonsense. You just need a sharp blade that's been properly installed, and you really shouldn't be experiencing much in the way of drift when resawing. And that has been my experience. I mean, when the blades are... I notice a marked difference on my saw when that blade's cooked and I try to resaw something and when it's properly set up and brand new. Man, it's a huge difference. The more you use your bandsaw, I use mine a lot, you can start to feel as soon as the blade starts to go dull because it's harder to cut. Just like yeah. with any other tool, like with a hand plane, you, how do you know when the blade's getting dull? Yep. Well, it's harder to push it. It doesn't take as shaving as nicely. So <clears throat> it's going to do the same thing with a bandsaw. Yep. And happen. just like a hand plane or a chisel, for a tool that isn't sharp, sharp, it's still functional for certain tasks. And right. so, yeah. you know, if I have a bandsaw blade, it's been on for a while, and I know it's not sharp, sharp, I'll do a lot of menial stuff with it. I'm not going to bother changing it just because I know it's dull, but resawing is you really notice it because of the, yes. of the strain so, and stress you yeah. put on the blade cutting through something really thick. And um, I will, if I have a lot of resawing to do and I know my blade is, has seen better days, that'll be the time I'll, I'll most likely change that sucker out. Yeah, it's absolutely critical that you have a sharp blade for fine resawing. If I'm simply going to resaw a board in half to make a thinner board and then I'm going to go, you know, it's not really to get a grain match or something – I still might do that with a dull blade uh, or dullish blade, I should say. But um, joinery, you can sort of get by with a kind of working sharp blade, right? Uh, not a super, not a you know a super sharp blade, but working sharp. And you know a lot of other stuff, ripping stuff to width, it almost doesn't matter at all. Uh, or ripping stuff, you know, close to width, I should say, roughing things out. It Your thoughts right. about MDF on the bandsaw? Yeah, you do it if you have to. Yeah, yeah, but I've always, you know, I've always read this idea that you never know what kind of grit hmm. is going to be in that in that MDF and all that powder when they you press it. You never know what kind it. of grit and crap's going to be yeah. in the wood you cut. I always wondered if that was a, you know, a viable warning. Like, oh, don't cut MDF no, with a good it, new bandsaw blade. I don't understand the, how people freak, why people freak out about MDF and plywood. It's, look, everything you do with your tools mm-hmm. dulls them. Some of it dulls it faster than others. So just get over it and just do what you got to do, you know, and then sharpen your tools. So, Ed, get over it. 
Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I cut a lot of MDF on my pants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, actually, you know what the worst thing on a bandsaw is? I, I was cutting. I, I, I have this, um, these big old Doug fir beams, one of which I took out for you last night, Matt, because I'm giving you some wood. And, uh, really? It was about six months ago. I was resawing some of it. I got he, nothing. And uh, I owe him some. For, I owe him for some stuff. I gave him some bandsaw blades. But uh, yeah. I had, this was about six months ago, I was resawing some of that wood, and it was wood I had taken out of my house. And um, I had a brand new, freshly installed blade in my bandsaw, which coincidentally used to be yours, Mike, and then it was Matt's, and now it's mine. And I'm resawing this beautiful Doug fir. It's like, oh, such pretty stuff. And then, bam, right through a framing Ooh. nail. Did it break and the it blade? Was, it didn't break the blade, but, I mean, that blade yeah. was yeah. toast. Yes. That was the end of that. Man. I, I don't know what really dulls my bandsaw blades, but I do know it really dulls Mike's bandsaw blades. Because <laughs> that's where I go, like, knock on the back door and let, talk to his wife, and she lets me in the shop. And I, that's when I'm, like, my beach wood, you yeah. know, that I don't even clean the sand off there of. There you go. <laughs> nice. Take a driftwood. Shop. Yeah, my driftwood. You know, <laughs> concrete that needs to be a little bit. You oh, know. you don't have to tell Mike I stopped by. Just, yeah. I'll see him at work. I'll, I'll see him at work. I'll let him know I was here. Yeah. What is the sand doing on my <laughs> right. bandsaw? I'll leave right. him a couple of Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> All right, guys. Listen, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email. And every week we like to acknowledge some of the folks who leave messages up there. So here it is for this week from Rwood2015. I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning. Not only has the audio quality improved, but the interaction between all of you seems much less scripted. I love the humor and have learned a lot listening to this show. I look forward to each new episode. Keep up the good work. From Ren15, great balance between humor and substantive information about woodworking. I always learn something to put into practice in my shop. And finally, from C Standy one love the podcast. As a beginning woodworker, I've learned a ton from actually cutting wood to finishing my projects. I've been listening to the earlier episodes and wanted to come to Matt's defense in regards to his PhD. Historically, Matt has more of a claim to the title of doctor than an MD does. The title of doctor originated in medieval times and was used to refer to an academic who was considered to be an expert in their field, just like a... PhD. At this time, MDs did not exist, and your surgery was most likely performed by the same man who cut your hair. That's right, your barber. I'm not sure about the last part, because initially there were four different types of doctorates. Mm -hmm. There were doctorates of philosophy, Mm -hmm. doctorates of religion or divinity, I believe, doctorates of jurisprudence, and I thought it was medical doctors. The first university in Europe, there were four doctorates offered. The University of Padua? No, I think it was in Austria. Oh. I can't quite remember what this Oh, Der Spunkelhoven. Yes, Der Spunkelhoven. But there were four, and I, I just believe... just ticked off our two Austrian listeners. <laughs> ...that the medical doctor was one of them. Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on January 30th, 2015 for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalkattaunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Can we get an email that's tauntaun.com? T-O-N-T-O-N. Cheers, everybody. Go watch yourself some Star Wars.